You are listening to the podcast of New Life Church in Wayland, Michigan. Our longing is to see zero people in our community living unchanged by Jesus. We are a church navigating the messiness of life together in community. One of our core convictions is that everyone is welcome, no one is perfect, and anything is possible. I hope you know there is a place in the family for you here. For more information on gathering times and location, check out our website. But for now, I hope God speaks powerfully to you through this word. So let me go ahead and pray uh, before we jump into the teaching this morning. God, thank you for today. As frigid as it may be outside right now, God, we thank you for the sun. Uh, We thank you for the bird I hear chirping right now. We, uh, we just thank you for who you are, that you're present here with us, God. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you, to gather together. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. 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 So did you know that there are some pretty dumb laws out there? <laughs> Anybody? Like, for example, in a place called Goodyear, Arizona, it is illegal to spit in public. You can't spit on the sidewalk, you can't spit in the road, you can't spit on a building or at a child. Not that you would. (laughs) In fact, spitting comes with a fine of up to $2,500 and six months in jail. (laughs) Here's another one. In the entire state of Connecticut, it is illegal to sell a pickle unless it bounces when held from one height off the ground. Keep your non-bouncing pickles to yourself, okay? It's so stupid. Or in Gainesville, Georgia, which is the poultry capital of the world, it is illegal to eat fried chicken with utensils. No joke. In 2009, they arrested a tourist for eating fried chicken with a fork. You can't make this stuff up. Churches... Churches, just like states and cities, sometimes have some pretty weird unspoken rules. Maybe not laws, but rules as well, right? Like I grew up um, in a neighborhood that had a church. We didn't go to this church, but in the middle of the neighborhood was this Netherlands Reformed Church. And I'm pretty Dutch. Anybody else Dutch in here? Yeah, (laughs) willing to admit it. Uh, And uh, at this Netherlands Reformed Church, I'm not joking, every single woman wore a giant hat on the way into church, but that wasn't the weird part. Lots of churches do that. The weird part is that every single car, without fail, parked in a way where they were facing the church. So they all backed in. Like, you could tell if there was a visitor in that church because they pulled straight into the parking spot rather than... It's like their cars need blessings from the church or something like that. But we have weird kind of unspoken rules in the church as well, don't we? And today what I want to do is I want to actually look at the role of law in the scriptures. And many of us, when we, when we read about some of the rules and some of the laws in scriptures, they, they make about as much sense to us as a bouncing pickle, right? They make about as much sense to us as some of these crazy laws. Does anybody happen to know how many total laws God gave his people, separate laws God gave his people in this book? Anybody? 613 separate laws. 613 separate laws. And some of these laws are insane. Like three different places, it tells the Israelites that they cannot boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. There's another law that says if you are a man who is dueling with another man 
and his wife tries to disarm you by going below your belt, not a joke, you are to chop off her hand and show no pity. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, as you do, when you're, next time you're in a duel, <laughs> I mean, from not eating bats to not sitting on the same chair as a menstruating woman to not, this is a fun one, to not marrying your wife's sister while your wife is still alive, not sure that is much of a problem, hopefully, for anybody in here. There's some weird stuff in here, like some really weird stuff. And uh, I mean, there's laws like most of us have probably heard like the Ten Commandments, the Big Ten, but there's also laws on cleanliness, laws on sacrifice, laws on economics, laws on (laughs) civility. Words are hard. And perhaps the most pressing question for every single one of us when it comes to the law in the Bible is this question right here. Who cares? Anybody read the Bible and you just find yourself scratching your head like, who cares? Why are there so many laws in here that seem like you're never going to hear me preach a sermon on not boiling your baby goat in its mother's milk? And yet, what I believe is important for us to know about the law is that the law in this book is not just a list of rules. Like this law code that was written for an ancient group of people that does not apply to us today, this specific law code actually is tied to a greater story. It's tied to a story about God's covenant with his people and who this people is becoming as a result of their covenant with him. You see, the law isn't just a list of rules Accompanying the law is a pattern that you see over and over again in the scriptures. It happens repeatedly and constantly. There's this theme, there's this pattern that every time law is given, you you also see something else happen simultaneously. And so I want to see if you can catch it as we jump into Exodus chapter 32, verse 7 this morning. Exodus chapter 32, verse 7. And just to set the scene, Moses is on Mount Sinai. He's meeting with God. The Israelites have just been freed from slavery in Egypt. Moses is meeting with God. They're establishing covenant together about who this new people is going to be, and this is what happens. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I have commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Ironically, I have a really stiff neck this morning. That's not even a joke. Um, But there's this pattern that happens when it comes to the law in the Bible. And this is just one example of what happens. You see, this pattern is this, that God gives the law to people. God gives the law. And then what happens next is Israel fails epically. Israel fails horrendously. In this encounter, it's God's, God gives the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. Moses comes down, and Israel is failing epically, and then rinse and repeat over and over again. God's law is given. Israel falls desperately short, and it happens over and over again. For example, God gave Moses laws 
about how to build his house of worship, about how to build the tabernacle, this traveling tent that would go with Israel to be a place where God would be worshipped. And as soon as God's presence at the end of Exodus enters the tabernacle, fills the tabernacle, Moses can't even enter it because he's reminded of human shortcomings. And so what does God do? He gives laws, more laws, on how priests and ritual and um, cleanly, uh, priests and ritual and sacrifice can happen so that Israel can enter the tabernacle and experience the glory of God. And what happens once priests enter the tabernacle to experience and worship God and make atonement for sin? What happens? The priests violate the law. Once again, Israel fills epically. They're struck dead in the holiest place. And so more laws are given about how to experience purity and clean yourself and cleanliness and all of these things. And then Israel eventually leaves Mount Sinai. They're wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And in the book of Numbers, you see this pattern once again. God's law is given. Rebellion after rebellion after rebellion happens in Israel. And it's just this ugly cycle of rinse and repeat. Utter and total failure. This is what the law does. It highlights for Israel the pattern of failure. This pattern happens so many times that at the very end of Moses' life, he gets up in front of Israel and he says, you guys basically suck. (laughs) You're really bad at this. Like you just fail and fail and fail and you're unfaithful to God. His wrath is turned towards you. Your lives are marked by sin and infidelity to God. This is Moses' final words to Israel. Like you guys are just Awful, awful people. He was not the most popular. No, I'm just kidding. And that's what the law does. It acts for Israel like a mirror where they can look into this mirror and they can see themselves as failures when it comes to the glory of God. I brought this mirror and I'm really excited because it like shines light everywhere and I can like blind some people. Pew, pew. Just kidding. I am going to shine it in the camera there. Uh, But you all have mirrors on on your seats as well. And I want you to look in them. Because this is what the law does for Israel. The law for Israel becomes a painful mirror of their own shortcomings, their own failures, and their own desperate, desperate need for God. And you know, it's easy to read about other people's failures in a law book that doesn't apply to us anymore. Like, our society loves other people's failures. It's become a form of entertainment, hasn't it? It's addictive. I mean, every single week, it it seems like there's another celebrity that we're pointing to failure at, whether it's like Joe Rogan or Whoopi Goldberg or whatever it might be. Every single week, there is somebody else that the spotlight is being shown on for whatever their failure or perceived failure might be. And pastors are no exception to this. Pastors, man, their stories of failure are just consumed by the church all over the place. I have a friend that calls us fail porn. That's how obsessive we are about failure and other people's failure in our society. But what happens when the mirror is not turned towards other people, blinding other people with stage lights, 
but is actually turned towards me? Like, what happens when I look at the mirror in my own life? Because there's a thousand cheesy quotes out there that say things like, failure is just the stepping stones to success. Ugh, gag me. Like, for some of us, failure feels a lot more like an identity. Like, for some of us, we look in the mirror of failure, and maybe we lost our job, or we failed an exam in school. And losing our job is not just losing our job, but it actually confirms everything our father told us when we were kids about how much of a failure we are. Maybe for you, you're, you look in the mirror and, and you're going through a painful divorce right now. And it's confirmed everything that you've believed about yourself not being lovable or worthy of love and affection. And so you look in the mirror and all you see is failure. Maybe for you, you, you raised kids and, and one of them is super wayward right now. They're just, they want nothing to do with you. They want nothing to do with faith. They want nothing to do with church. And you look in the mirror and you ask the question, did I fail as a parent? Like your shortcomings as a parent are on full display. You see guys, we, what we do when we look at failure, when we look at ourselves in the mirror of failure is for so many of us, we, we blame shift. We talked about that last week. Like I'll take 5% of the responsibility for my failure, but I'm gonna deflect and place the other 95% on everybody else around me. Why? Because the weight of our failure is too heavy to bear when we're faced with it. And I could lie to you this morning And I could tell you, Jesus doesn't want you to see your own failures and shortcomings. Like, I could lie to you and and say, Jesus just doesn't want you to feel them. He doesn't want you to feel the weight of him. Because it's in his most longest, most longest, it's in his longest teaching, his most famous teaching, where he takes these principles of the law that were applied to the Israelite people, and he puts a spotlight on every single one of us. You see, what Jesus does is he holds up this mirror for a law that feels kind of irrelevant to us, and he applies it to every single one of us. You have heard it was said, do not commit murder. He's pointing to the law. But I tell you, anybody who holds resentment in their heart towards another person is guilty of murder. It's a mirror. He doesn't allow us to look away from the mirror. You have heard it was said, do not commit adultery. Once again, he's pointing to the law, the 613 rules that God gave Israel. And he's saying, but I tell you the truth, anybody who looks at another person lustfully has already committed adultery with them in their heart. It's a mirror of our own failure. You have heard it was said, pointing to the law again, eye for eye. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He's once again holding up a mirror for every single one of us. And his assessment of the law is this in Matthew 5, verse 20. I'm going to set this down so I don't keep blinding everybody. Matthew 5, verse 20, this is what Jesus says. For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, the best law keepers, the ones who are flawless when it comes to the law, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Maybe you're a better person than me. But when I read Jesus' assessment of the law, I personally, Brad, have violated every single one of them. 
without fail. Every single one of them. Like Jesus' view of the law indicts me. It doesn't allow me to just shine this mirror on everybody else. It actually indicts me. Because if Jesus is right, which I believe he is, because we're in a church and I'm a pastor, if Jesus is right, my infidelity to God is just like Israel's. Like if Jesus is right, I am the worst of sinners deserving of judgment by a holy God when I look in this mirror. I don't have a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, and I never will on my own. I don't have that righteousness. I cannot perform my way into right relationship with God. I cannot perform my way to be successful when it comes to the law. There is no pretense standing in front of God. Every single one of us stands before God as we are, fully exposed, no masks on, and he sees right through us. Jesus, he wants us to come face to face with the weight of our own failure. He wants us to feel it, to see it, to name it, and to feel the pain and the weight of this. This is the role of the law for Israel. This is the role of the law for us, to look into the mirror. Why? Because for most of us, it takes a rock-bottom type of experience to know that we are actually in desperate need of rescue. It takes a good, hard look in the mirror to know that we are actually in need of desperate rescue. Here's the hope this morning, that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the opposite of failure is not success. If it was, we'd be doomed. The opposite of failure is surrender. I'm going to say that again. If you're taking notes, write this down. This is an important one. If in the gospel, the opposite of failure is not success. It's not just trying harder. It's not just doing better. The opposite of failure in the gospel is surrender. I had a meeting with a guy from our church uh, the other week, and we just sat and we talked and just processed through some of the stuff that he was going through in life, that I was going through in my, my life. And um, I left that meeting kind of sad, to be honest. And the reason that I left that meeting sad is because in our conversation, this guy made it really clear that if people in this church knew who he was under the surface and under the masks, that he would be wholly and completely rejected. That he wouldn't be loved. That he wouldn't be accepted. And so his solution to that was, well, I just need to try harder to be the person people think I am. I just need to put my head down and I need to do better, and I need to uh, try harder and be stronger, to which I say, no, no. But when I look at my life, I find myself doing the same thing. Like, if people knew what I really struggled with or who I really was, that, that somehow I'd be cast out and I'd be rejected too. And what we end up doing, even if we've known Jesus for a long time, is we have this pattern that I call law, grace, law where we understand the weight of our sin at the beginning, that's law, that we understand the mirror of our failure, that we don't measure up and we understand that. And so we believe that it took the grace of the cross to save us, to redeem us, to rescue us, and to get us a free ticket into heaven. Nothing up to that point is wrong. That's correct. That's true. But here's where we go wrong. 
that for some of us, we believe the lie that we needed the cross of Jesus Christ at one point to get us into heaven, to get us out of hell free, but now we'll take it from here and this life of holiness, this life of righteousness, we're just gonna do that on our own. We're just gonna try harder. And so what we end up doing is we end up living in the law once again that it's just about behavior modification and it's just about doing the right things or putting on the right mask or showing up the right face. But you somehow don't believe that you are in desperate need of that salvation and that cross every single day that you wake up. See, we fall right back into the same trap and lie with the same mirror of our own failure staring us in the face, and some of us are paralyzed by that reality. Some of us are apathetic about faith because of that reality. Some of us are blame-shifting and pointing our finger at everyone else that we possibly can because we are paralyzed by the reality of law, grace, law in our lives. And friends, I am here to remind you that in the gospel, the opposite of success is, or the opposite of failure is not success. It is surrender. Every single flipping day, it is surrender. Paul, who wrote a giant portion of the New Testament, who was a Pharisee, by the way, understood this perhaps better than anybody else. In fact, he says in Philippians 3, he says, if any of you have reason to put confidence in your behavior, in your flesh, I have more confidence in that. Like I was flawless as a Pharisee, the best law keeper of the law keepers, that when Jesus says your, your righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees, Paul's feeling pretty good about himself according to that standard. But it wasn't until he had an encounter with Jesus that he began to recognize that your righteousness doesn't surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees because of anything you bring to the table. You have a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees because of something that has been done and handed to you on a cross. That's how you get a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. That someone who was truly righteous named Jesus took on the weight of sin, took on the weight of our law-breaking, our lawlessness, our shortcomings, our failures, and our weakness. And he bore that on himself. And so Paul's spiritual growth wasn't marked by just kind of pulling himself up and doing better and trying harder. His spiritual growth was actually marked by getting way more honest about the role of sin in his life as his life progressed. I want to show this to you really quick. This is just so interesting to me. 14 years after Paul is saved, he writes a letter to the Galatian church. And in this letter, there's almost a sense of um, comparison between him and other followers of Jesus, him and other apostles. He's trying to make a point. He's trying to establish credibility. And so he says this. He says, whatever they are, the other disciples, makes no difference to me. There's almost a spirit of competitiveness to, to kind of prove yourself in, in the earlier letters. But then as he goes on, like five, six years later, he writes a letter to a church in Corinth. And this is what he says. He says, I am the least of the apostles. Doesn't stop there, though. Five years after that, he writes a letter to a church in Ephesus, and he says this. He says, I am less than the least of all of the Lord's people. 
And then two years before Paul's death, two years before he dies, another five or six years after Ephesians, he writes these words. I am the worst of all sinners. Paul understood that you cannot carry the weight of your own failure. You weren't built to. But there is one who can. There's one who desires to, and there's one who will if you will let him. And so maybe you're here this morning and you're struggling with apathy when it comes to faith. Can I just tell you that as I've reflected on just people who have told me they're apathetic about faith, I think the inability to feel the weight of your sin when you come to the cross is what leads to apathy in faith. Like people who are apathetic about faith have put the mirror of their own sin in their back pocket. And it's easy to talk about Jesus and it's easy to look at the cross and it's easy to feel nothing. But when I take that mirror out and I see myself and I see the weight of my own failure, my own shortcoming, and I compare that to what Jesus took on himself on the cross, Apathy is impossible when it comes to faith. Because every single day, you are struck with awe over what he has done for you. And for you, no masks, no rejection, no having to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You look in the mirror of your own failure, and you look to the cross, and you are overcome every single time. Every single day. Maybe apathy is not your issue. Maybe you feeling the weight of your own failure is your issue. Like maybe for you, you struggle to hold it up, taking it on as an identity in different areas of your life. Like those words that were spoken over you, the, the bullying that happened to you, whatever it might be, those just, those just are on repeat, on repeat, on repeat in your head, and you can't quite shake them. And to you, I would say this. You don't have an issue with putting the mirror in your back pocket, and you're good at seeing the mirror, but you have not yet learned how to lay down the mirror of your own failure at the cross of Jesus Christ. And so you are holding that, and you can't see the cross beyond the mirror of your own failure, the ways that you are, are, are falling short, the shortcomings that you have in your life. And so to you, I would say, hold up the mirror. Look in it. Name your failures. Feel the weight of them. But then understand that Jesus invites you to lay that down at the cross and experience freedom from them. And perhaps maybe those aren't your issues. Perhaps you struggle with putting the weight of your failure on every single other person around you. You hurt somebody. You cheated on your wife. You did whatever you did. And so you, you don't want to bear the weight of that. And so you want to point out everybody else's failures. And so what you have done is you aren't looking at the mirror. It's not that you've put the mirror in your back pocket, but you're shining the mirror in everybody else's eyes all the time. And, and there's a white thing on the back, and you can't see your own failure in the midst of it. To you, I would say, turn the mirror around. And bring it to this cross. Every single one of us in this room, watching online, 
have something that we would write down on this mirror. Some area of apathy, some area of failure or sin and shortcoming. Every single one of us do. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 7. He says this, It happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's law, his commands, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Parts of me covertly rebel, and just when I at least expect it, they take charge. I've tried everything, and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? The answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions where I want to serve God with all my heart and mind, but I'm pulled by the influence to do, of sin to do something totally different. Paul understood the role of the mirror in his life. But the calling of every single one of us is to see it, see the sin, see the failure, see the shame, to name it and to feel it, to get really honest about it, and then to lay it down and surrender it. And friends, that is a daily process. That is not a one-and-done thing. That is a daily process. And, and the promise, and, and I've experienced this in my life. I've experienced this. To, I, I will take this uh, to the grave. This is how, how much I believe in this. That when you name it, and you lay it down before Jesus, he is in the business of healing it. He is in the business of forgiving it. He is in the business of setting you free from it. Are you willing to surrender it? And so here's how I want to close this morning. I want you to take this mirror. We're going to leave a, a couple minutes of space here while the band makes their way back up. I want you to look in this mirror. And I want you to think about what you would write on this mirror. What is the role of failure in your life? What is the identity of failure you've taken on? What is the sin pattern or sin issue that just seems to have such a hold on your soul? Where are you in bondage? Where, when you come into this place and this church, do you feel like you have to wear a mask to measure up? Where is it for you? And then here's what we're going to do. But I believe there's power in a physical response this morning. That we're going we're gonna to take these mirrors, and there's Sharpie markers up here. There's a table with Sharpies on the back. And I want to challenge every single one of us during this song to write that thing down for us, that area of greatest failure, the area of hidden shame, the area where sin has a hold on your life, and I'm going to invite you to write that down and then to lay it down at the cross of Jesus Christ. Friends, this is the transition from the section about sin to the story and the good news of redemption. But we don't have to stay enslaved to our areas of sin and shame, our areas of hiddenness and woundedness and brokenness, 
that through the process of surrender, we are invited to experience freedom. So I'm going to go first here. I've navigated a lot of sexual shame in my life. A lot of wounds and brokenness. And for me, the healing that I have found at the cross is to name that. To name the sexual shame and the sexual brokenness that I've encountered in my own life and to lay that down That was really dramatic. (laughs) And to experience freedom from it. What is yours? Let me pray, and then we're going to leave some space to just begin doing that. God, your cross isn't just good news for that one time we said a magical little prayer. Jesus, your good news is good news for the worst of sinners. Your good news is good news for every single one of us, no exceptions. Every single one of us, the worst of the worst of law keepers, can find righteousness and healing and redemption and restoration at this cross, the place where you died and laid your life down. And so, God, we thank you that your story is not a story where sin gets the final word, but your story is one of redemption and restoration for those who are willing to lay their mirrors down at the cross. That in your good news, in your gospel, the opposite of failure is not success, it's surrender. And so, God, this morning we come forward and we do just that. We surrender our areas of greatest failure, our areas of greatest shame to you, and we ask you to heal them. God, there is power in laying it down, naming it and laying it down. So it's in the matchless and holy name of Jesus that we pray, and everybody said, amen. Amen. I want to invite you for the next few minutes to just begin thinking about what you want to write down on that mirror And then when you're ready, you can do it now, you can do it during this song. Come forward while we sing and lay it down at the cross.